I'm Chef Pete Gagan from Cargill, and we're in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats. It's a podcast where we'll be serving up insights and perspectives for chefs and food service professionals. And of course, we'll be digging into the world of premium beef. Because even with over 30 years of culinary experience, I still have an appetite for learning more. I hope you're hungry too. This is part one of a two-part episode. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss part two. Just follow the directions at the end to get every episode. We're coming to you from the Cargill Innovation Center in Wichita, Kansas. And today on the podcast, Dan Salem is joining us from Minneapolis, Minnesota to talk about the importance of menu engineering and other ways to boost profitability. Dan is the founder and principal at Salem Food Service Solutions, where he consults with restaurant operators, distributors, and manufacturers to establish connections and maintain profitable growth. Dan has a unique background that has spanned the last four decades, working on both sides of the table in sales, sales management, corporate business development, and restaurant operations. His experience includes full-line food service distribution at three of the nation's top five broadliners, as well as direct store delivery on the manufacturing side of the industry at Sarah Lee. For the five years prior to consulting, Dan served as the chief operating officer for a successful privately held 10-unit restaurant group in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area. Welcome into the kitchen, Dan. Thanks so much, Chef Pete. Let's kick things off. Please tell our listeners a bit more about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Avid sports fan growing up, played sports. And when the steel industry collapsed, I ended up uh, leaving Pittsburgh. So I took a job with a food distributor in Chicago. After college, I had studied uh, business administration, focused in marketing. And then I got into the uh, food service industry, which seemed like a pretty natural fit because uh, Pittsburgh at the height of the steel industry and the heavy industry going on out there, you know, everybody that I grew up with, most of their grandparents had come from overseas. So it was a an ethnic melting pot, but one of the great things about that was, you know, hospitality and food were just a big part of the culture. So, you know, I grew up eating all type of different ethnic foods. So when I decided to get into sales and got into the food service distribution business, it was a pretty natural fit. So here we are a little over 40 years later, still dealing in food service. Hmm, that's great. And uh, we're becoming even more of a melting pot, right, across the U.S. So, yeah. so you know, we asked to have you on this podcast because, you know, your expertise is in the area of menu engineering and helping the other restaurants with uh, growing their profits. And I think that's just such a great subject and so important for those out there that may not understand what it is. So I'd love for you to, uh, you know, go through some of your experiences with that on us uh, on the show today. But also, I guess, start off with just a basic definition or idea of what is menu engineering. Sure. So menu engineering, I think it's a term that a lot of people have heard. But for me, I dug into it in the mid 80s when I was selling because I was looking for new ways to help my customers when I was a sales rep to grow their bottom line. And so actually in 1982, two professors in the hospitality program at Michigan State University, Cassavanna and Smith, they were the ones that actually came up with a menu engineering matrix approach to analyzing menus. And so thus the term menu engineering came out of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that was the start of it, really looking at sales volume and contribution margin by items. 
So you mentioned the Matrix, right? So mm-hmm. we've got the plow horse, the star, the dog, the puzzle. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've heard this and I was taught this too in uh, culinary school. So can you talk about those a little bit more? So those that are a little unfamiliar with that, you know, how does that play out? What does that Matrix actually do when you really look at your menu, look at what you're doing in your operation and put it against that Matrix? So it's really about... You know, if you just visualize the matrix in the four quadrants and so on the left side, the vertical axis, you know, you're measuring popularity. How many items did you sell? So what what are the sales over a a one-month period, a quarterly period? Every operator looks a little bit differently. So, uh, And then on the horizontal axis, uh, you're looking at the the contribution margin, the gross profit by item. So uh, if you can visualize the quadrants in that upper left-hand corner would be the plow horse because that is better than average sales on your menu, but it's to the left of the average contribution margin. So that top left, the plow horse, great sales, but less than average gross profit. And then the top right, that's the sweet spot. Those are your star items. And so the stars, obviously, again, they're better than average volume but it's to the right side of the average contribution margin. So they are very profitable. And these, these are the key items, usually uh, what restaurants are known for. And then if you come straight down to the bottom right quadrant, that would be the puzzle. So it's greater than average profitability, but unfortunately it's not selling. And so, you know, what do you do with that? Is it something that we need to rename the item? Do we need to reposition it on the menu is it an item that we need to adjust the price? Maybe it's an item that's very profitable, but we need to lower the price. Uh, and if none of those strategies work, then maybe you remove it. And then the bottom left-hand quadrant is the dogs. And uh, the dog on the menu, less than average profit, less than an average popularity. But sometimes, uh, you know, those are items that you need to keep on a menu because sometimes, even though you know it's, not going to be a, a home run for you if you have a party of six coming you you don't want them to veto your restaurant so sometimes an intentional strategy is to leave a couple items on the menu that really will at least appeal to all parties so that uh, again you won't get the veto so does that make sense yeah, it totally does. And uh, I want to just keep that conversation going a little bit more. So, you know, when you're talking about that dog, per se, and uh, I've always remember running restaurants, you know, having, especially back in the day, you know, like having a veal chop, right? Very expensive to bring in. And, you know, you can't charge, and let's just say your average entree is 25, 30 bucks. You can't charge 50 for that. So you're going to basically not make much money on it. Maybe you're going to charge 30 for it, 32, 33. And it might be costing you $25 just for that chop to bring it in. But the grandfather's the one who wants that. And he's the one that's bringing the kids in who's going to shell out the money and pay for that, you know, eight top, six top, five top, whatever it is. So that's that dog that you just sometimes you have to have on the menu to bring those, uh, you know, the people who have the money into your restaurant. And I would love you if you could touch a little bit more on the idea of the puzzle and looking at something you know is profitable and you believe it's good. Maybe you're just, like you mentioned, it's not on the right place in the menu where people don't see it and maybe they made their decision beforehand. Or maybe it's just the naming of it, pricing. There's a few different things that people could look at, but I'd love for you to touch on that a little bit more on how a restaurant should think about that going, "Mm, I feel good about this and it makes me a lot of money, but... 
How did we change that? That's a great point. And I love the uh, Vilchop uh, story because that's very real. When you're looking at puzzles, you know, I can think back to probably a decade ago with a very large client back when I was in the distribution world. And, you know, at the time, uh, food was pretty cheap and they had a, a shrimp and pasta dish. They were a family style casual dining restaurant. I, I would say a little bit of an upscale casual dining, but very approachable. And they served breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And probably at that point, I'd say their average menu price was very affordable. It was probably in that thirteen ninety five range. They had a shrimp and pasta dish, which I thought was really good, fifteen ninety five, and it was. You know, cost them probably three fifty all in. They're running like a twenty two percent food cost, and so mm. we, I remember discussing that and saying, "Well, first of all, I don't think it's positioned properly on a menu, but I think based on your average check and some of your other more popular entrees, why don't you try featuring this item and uh, put it on a feature for thirteen fifty? And then if it's got legs, then maybe you can you know consider repricing it and reposition it on the menu." Uh, anyway, long story short, it ended up going really well with the feature. They put the price in at thirteen fifty, which was still a twenty six percent food cost. Company wide at the time they were running about a twenty nine percent, but that's one example of where an item was featured and they realized they were charging a little bit too much from a value perception standpoint. Yeah, it's really important to understand your clientele and how much can you charge, right? There is that point where, you know, even another 50 cents, it just, it, the numbers don't look good and people stay away from that on a menu. And like you mentioned and, and what you're saying is, you know, you, you have to look at how many units am I going to sell? Right? Is it really worth it to try to squeeze another, you know, fifty cents out of it? But, and maybe my units go down too much, and then you're not making any money, um, and you're not selling it. But if you keep it where it's at, even though maybe the cost went up a little bit, you're still selling so many units that it's important. I remember being in a restaurant. Sometimes it's you had to have some things. But you, maybe you didn't want that to be your main seller, so you had to put it in a different spot on the menu. And you can actually control your, your sales a little bit there by putting it, say, in the left-hand corner. I, I don't remember the exacts, and, and you can maybe get into it a little bit more, how people actually read a menu. Sure. You know, if it's an opening and it's a two-page menu, you know, where do their eyes go to the right top immediately or something along those lines, but you can put it in a different spot and it'll still do well uh, and you're still making money, but you're not selling too many. And and sometimes you have to think about just your operations too, right? You know, there's there's yeah. a profit piece and all, but you know, if it's a fried item, I have to keep it on there, but my fryer is getting too full. How do you slow those sales down a little? Yeah, that's a great point. So that balance on the menu is critical. And I, I mentioned earlier, I studied uh, marketing and, you know, everybody's probably heard about the four P's of marketing, right? Product, price, place, promotion. And so for me, I always look for simple ways to remember some of these things. So, uh, you know, after finding out about Casavan and Smith, I, I really coined this, okay, the four P's of menu engineering. So we discussed the popularity and the profitability. But now to touch on what you just talked about, Chef, is that pricing strategy and the placement on the menu. And so placement is critical and you know we're in a very changing time with digital menus but the traditional restaurants the best menu is that basic two-page fold out so when it's on the table you've got the cover you open it up 
and you've just got the two pages, right? So the, the prime real estate on that menu is going to be that top right-hand corner. And so typically what diners will do when they open it, they'll look up into that top right, and then they'll scan over to the top left, scan down, and then they'll come back over to the middle of the right page. So that is the eye flow for your dining patrons. And uh, it does work. It's been studied at, at numerous universities. And obviously, it's not 100% foolproof, but that's where the majority of the guests go. Yeah, no, that's perfect. I mean, it's just, again, the importance of where you put stuff. You, you can't mm-hmm. just throw something together uh, and just put things anywhere on, on a page, even if it's a single page. People, and, and like you mentioned, the studies are out there. People gravitate. Their eyes go to a certain spot first and work their way through. So those are those errors. And not everybody scans the whole menu either. They come across that one item, then they go, mm, I'm done. I don't want to go any further. Right. So it's important to make sure that, you know, that the dog or, you know, actually the dog should come off. Right. Um, but the, the ones that maybe you're not making as much and you don't want to sell because, you know, you want grandpa to come in and buy. But that goes somewhere else where he's going to find it because he's going to search for it. Right. Well, it's critical because the menu, I, I can't remember who I heard it from, but, you know, they said that the menu is your roadmap to profitability. And so, you know, you got to keep it fresh. You got to keep it clean. You definitely do have to take some of the dogs off the menu. But strategically, when you know your profitability by item, it makes it a lot better. And I would just encourage all operators to have some type of system or even if it's their own Excel spreadsheet to make sure they're on top of their costs, especially in a time right now with some of the crazy things we're seeing with supply chain and availability. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, pricing probably changes daily more than it ever has and and bigger spikes and it's really important. I mean, you might just have to keep that one thing on the menu that used to make you some money, but that's where people come in and really think about, you know, what can I do to drive my profits and still put out great food? And, you know, in many cases, that's, you know, taking a look at, say, you know, beef, uh, looking at the animal and going, okay, I can make some great stews. I, I You know, I can get the chuck in or, or I can use some ball tips, something like that, and, and make a, a great shredded beef product or a stew or something that's delicious and really push that and it stays within, you know, the style of my restaurant, but it's a little bit of a cheaper cut. It's still a great product, but, you know, sometimes pushing those middle meats is, they're pretty expensive, you know, and maybe the profit's getting squeezed because you can only go so far with those prices. So it's really important to know that mix on your menu. Um, You know, I'm sure everybody that owns a restaurant understands a menu mix, but there's more to it than just, okay, my mix, right? And that's what we're talking about here. Since we're talking about boosting profitability, you just mentioned before, you know, the four P's of marketing. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about how you mentioned you changed that over to profitability in the menu. And I know you've turned those four P's into, I believe it's about eight P's now. So if you can go through that, the way you think about it, because I found it to be pretty awesome and it makes it easy. But if you can focus on these eight P's and then really dig into the few that maybe need a little uh, help and or focus, it can really drive your overall profitability. That's uh, absolutely correct. So, you know, the, again, the four P's 20 years ago, it was pretty easy. You know, you didn't have labor shortages and you didn't have as much intense competition. And so, you know, understanding the popularity and profitability and then coming up with your pricing strategy and placement on the menu, that's 
it was just less complex. But you know, now we're in a world with a lot of a lot of changes. COVID changed a lot of things mm-hmm. forever. But but even prior to COVID, you know, you, you had some of the third party delivery startups and uh, and that escalated obviously after COVID hit. But you know, so with digital menus, things of that nature. But the the labor shortage, I think, is what got me into expanding. The original four P's, I realized that's really not enough anymore to assist some of our clients. So uh, the fifth P that I came up with was production time. And you had mentioned earlier, uh, Chef, about the stress on the fryer. You know, I, mm-hmm. I know of one operator, they opened up their restaurant. They were gangbusters. This was probably 10 years ago. And they they actually totally redid their menu within the first month because they had too much pressure on certain stations. And so, so that fifth P of production time, um, you know, when, when you have a real problem with labor, what can you do to, you know, to be more productive in the kitchen? How can you balance things? Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I uh, had a client that uh, lunch and dinner establishment and attracted a lot of business people. And they had this uh, boneless center cut pork chop that was marinated, proprietary marinated. It was, it was just to die for. But, you know, they had it up in that top right spot. They also served ribs, and they were they had a very good rib product. They weren't known as a rib restaurant, but they had excellent ribs. And uh, so, you know, to think in terms of um, production time, you know, when you're lined up uh, in normal business time, you know, post-COVID, where you've got to wait on a Friday night and a Saturday night, uh, again, because most people scan menus, you want to leave that center cut boneless pork chop on the menu, but put up in that top right hand corner your ribs because they're already smoked. All you've got to do is flash them, right? So those, that's mm-hmm. an easy item that's popular that can really help not only from a production time standpoint, but it also helps you with your revenue per available seat hour. So it's going to, in a very inconspicuous way, it's going to help you to turn tables more quickly. So that was the fifth P, which kind of held up for a while. And then, you know, lo and behold, you know, as things continue to to change with third-party delivery, that's how the next three came in the, into play for me. And, and uh, But I, I guess I should back up and say before really the COVID hit, Professor Tom Kelly, he was he actually headed up the culinary school at, at Cornell University, and I had heard him speak in the 1990s, and he talked a lot about value perception. And so the 6P I came up with was the presentation slash plating of the items. So as restaurants have changed, as you still have white tablecloth type restaurants, but they're a bit more casual in style and you have a lot of casual restaurants stepping up. So presentation and plating became very critical. And Kelly talked about uh, the value perception from the guest vantage point when they're coming into a restaurant. And so he, he put a formula up on the board, V equals F plus B plus S plus A divided by the price. And his value equation was value equals the food plus the beverage plus the service plus the atmosphere divided by the price. So that 6P really, I felt, came into place as you're dealing with some labor issues, but you also, in a more competitive market with more restaurants, you need to set yourself apart, right? Yeah. It's so important to understand what that value equation is for anybody. And it's going to be different for the type of clientele you have, the type of restaurant you have. But reality is, is understanding that all of it comes into play. 
You know, I yeah. think we all know those restaurants that we just, you know, I mean, sometimes I want to go out and I want to be taken care of. So I may go somewhere and I might sacrifice the meal a little bit, knowing that the service is going to be and the ambiance is just going to be phenomenal sure. and vice versa. I might just really be craving that amazing burger or something like that, but I know that it's going to take forever and the service isn't the best. They don't treat me great, but I still want that great burger, right? So we, as the consumer or the customer, have to decide that. But as the owner of a restaurant, the operator, you have to understand what is it that people are looking for when they come to your place? Yeah, there, there's an emotional aspect to it, obviously, right? And, Very. <laughs> uh, and so those are, uh, and you know, consumers only have so much bandwidth, right? I, I read an article once years ago that talked about, you know, the average restaurant guest, they usually don't have much more than five go-to restaurants. One might be for business, right? One might be for family, one might be for special occasions, but I think that's why it's so important to be consistent in your offering. And as someone has a bad experience somewhere else, what are you doing? Uh, obviously, word of mouth advertising is, is the most powerful, but a lot of restaurants that are very entrenched in their communities, you know, those are the ones that are going to, as, as people maybe are disappointed in another restaurant, that they're going to gain market share because of, you know, the ways that they're doing business. And you mentioned you said the word consistency. We've I've talked about that in multiple podcasts, and it's a I'm a true believer of if you're going to be this top notch restaurant and and you're going to be high end and you're known for X, you just have to keep consistent with that, right? And then if if you're just a a little taco shop around the corner, you just have to be consistent. You have to be consistent with the product that you're bringing in, and you have to know the products you're bringing in are consistent, right? So across the board, the consumer, the customer that's coming in knows what the expectation that they're expecting, right? So they're going to walk in and go, I know what I want. I know what I like here. And maybe it's just an okay place, but it's always going to be that way. And it's not going to be amazing one day horrible the next day it's just good all the time that to me is probably more important to be that restaurant than to just you know be a roller coaster it's not always easy to do especially with uh, you know the labor shortages and the product shortages that we have today but i think the consumer is always still going to want that when they go there so that's the hard part now is that operator is to make sure that you're keeping up with that. And it might mean, hey, taking a few things off the menu, uh, making a few slight changes to stuff, but staying within, I don't know if the right word is, your lane where the expectation of your customer is. And, and yeah, production time you mentioned before, I just wanted to touch on that just a little. I was saying braises and all, and you say the same thing with ribs. I mean, that is so important for those out there that are, you know, still struggle today with the people that getting the help in the restaurant. You know, you want to think about the earlier part of the week. You know, you can get your stews and your braises, short ribs, whatever it might be. Those hold for a really long time. So you can get that done Monday and Tuesday and still serve it through the weekend. So you have to manage your time right, knowing that you're going to be shorthanded and still have that easy uh, time during service to put out products like the ribs. It's just a flash. You just got to get it hot, and it's not going to suffer being made a few days in advance. So some of those other peas, though, because yeah. uh, I know there's, there's a couple more, and, and again, I, I just love the way that you think about it, and uh, people can remember this a lot easier when you look at this. Just tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, 
you know, the seventh P I came up with was uh, when the third party delivery I at that time was, uh, you know, overseeing the, the restaurant group here in the Twin Cities. And, you know, there was a local third party delivery company that was banging on the door consistently and, and, you know, just seeing in the market that this isn't going away, this is going to continue to grow. And so preference was the seventh P does the guest want to dine in? Do they want to pick up or do they want a third party delivery? So uh, at that time I had trialed this company at one of the restaurants and, you know, my reservations were, okay, well, most people are going to order, at the same time that we have people coming in the door, right? And so on a, what do we do on a Saturday, Sunday brunch or a f- Friday night dinner? Uh, you know, we're going to have to turn off, you know, the third-party delivery app. But that preference really, uh, you know, we realized we had to be very strategic about mm-hmm. how we would do that and realize that uh, a lot of the younger generation, they want to dine with the click, Right. They don't mm-hmm. want to sit in a brick and mortar. They want to dine with the click. So, so preference became the the seventh P, and then the eighth tied into that portability and packaging, which really became more important than ever with the restaurant shutdown in many markets. So, starting uh, with four P's and ending up with the eight P's, it was just kind of a uh, a byproduct of market changes. You know, that's a, um, pretty interesting when you were just talking about that preference and, and the time. And I guess it didn't, you know, dawn on me that you got a packed restaurant and then you still have all these people ordering at the same time. And you were built to be able to handle the 200 seats you have in your restaurant. And now you got 300 that are wanting food at the same time. That, that can't be easy to juggle and, and manage. But it's something you have to decide, I guess, as, a, as the owner or the operator is – what am I going to do? And I guess you can turn the app off, right, if if you want for a short period of time. But that's just one more thing that the changes have uh, brought out for the industry. I don't know if you want to call it a struggle or just something that we have to adapt to and figure out, you know? Well, it's both because my wife and I uh, dined out with friends last Friday night, and it was very cold. And the restaurant, which normally there would be a wait, you know, they were maybe two thirds full mm-hmm. and the owner came out and I said, Hey, how's it going? I said, not your typical Friday night. He goes, yeah, not out here, but we're uh, crazy in the back. You know, the third party delivery and, and pickup is just, we're, we're, we're having a hard time keeping up in the kitchen. So wow. it's bittersweet, yep. right? That yep. when you're here in Minneapolis with the cold weather we get for a couple months a year, what actually is a godsend, right? That they're actually sure. able to do a very good job on that. Now, conversely, when you're in the spring and it's you're starting patio season, it's going on all cylinders. What some of the national chains have done is they've actually created streamlined and just created certain items that are only available digitally. So for some operators that have a large kitchen and large kitchen space, they can actually staff and even do that for just a to-go menu, uh, you know, maybe expand it a little bit, you know, so that's one option. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, and the other thing I'd like to get back to was your point, Chef Pete, about, okay, you have a restaurant that's a 200 seat establishment. And now with third party delivery, they've got 300 seats. And uh, I think what's happening in the market is that the rising cost and the labor crunch have really pushed operators to stay lean, cut menu items, 
And uh, many operators that I have are cutting their menus by anywhere from 15 to 20% or already have cut their menus by yeah. 15 to 20%. Yeah, I, that just makes a lot of sense. You don't have the hands and, and you know, in some cases you don't have the people to, to buy what you make. So <laughs> you, you got to be, you got to streamline it. Make make sure that it's uh, things you can get done, and and again back to that consistency. Just be consistent in delivering a good product to the customers. You know, as as we were talking here, it dawned on me that we talked about your your P's of uh, menu engineering, the eight of them, and we touched on five, six, seven, eight, but I don't think we really touched much on uh, one, two, three, and four. So, can you just go over those a little bit more for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So. The four P's came out of Casavan and Smith. Uh, basically, they were looking at that matrix approach on uh, focusing on popularity, the sales, and profitability. You know, what's the gross profit contribution margin by item? So popularity, number one, profitability, number two, and then pricing strategy, number three. And once you've determined those, you look at the placement strategy. Where will you put it again on the menu? Because people don't read menus. They scan menus. So another key element of pricing strategy is you, you've really got to do competitive analysis in a certain radius too. So, you know, do you have any other, I guess, experiences over the years where maybe you can explain something that, you know, maybe it's just not named right and you had to look at it from a different point of view and go, you know, if I change this word or just the overall name of the menu item, maybe it'll sell better. I know of a few things in in my career that I've seen and heard about that working well. So if you have any, that would be great. Yeah, I had a client two years ago they had a proprietary burger. They had these to die for fish tacos, you know, an ahi tuna burger. But they had a, a very good fried chicken sandwich, homemade, phenomenal, wasn't selling. So it was a puzzle. You know, it was, again, bottom right quadrant. It's above average profitability, but it's not selling. So we changed that item into a Nashville fried chicken sandwich. And all that it entailed mm-hmm. was just adding the sauce to it, and that turned into a star item. So that was a tweak, changed the item a little bit, but had an already great item that with just one tweak, and they were at the ahead of the uh, Nashville chicken craze. So they kind of beat the market to it up here in the Twin Cities. Timing's always good, right, too? So Absolutely. You know- you don't you don't want to be necessarily the follower, but you 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 see the trend coming slowly, or you just know that people will enjoy it. And you know the name Nashville that's that's a popular name, and that gets people to look at something. Oh, Nashville! You know, I could see that working really well. I have, and I want to say this the right way. I heard this years and years ago. There was a chain out there that had a very popular shrimp appetizer dish. And I don't want to give any names or anything like that, but they said that when they designed it, everybody was like, this is amazing, right? It was a little fried. It had a, a spicy sauce that went on it. and But it was ended up being a little bit of, you know, of that puzzle, almost a dog. It just wasn't selling. And they didn't understand. You know, a lot of people like spicy. And, um, and of course, who doesn't like some fried shrimp? So all they did was make a slight change to a name. And it was just someone just threw it out there. It really didn't make a lot of sense. And they just can't keep up with it. It is the star on the menu. They make so much money on it. They were able to raise the price of it. And everybody's copying it nowadays. 
whether they're changing that word a little bit, you know, but they're basically stealing that idea and putting on their menus, and it sells everywhere. But that just goes back to just a name. And this is typical marketing, right? And even for a car or, or um, a, a pen, it doesn't matter what it is. If, if you don't name it right and it doesn't resonate with the customer, they're not going to be interested in it. So sometimes, you know, anybody out there, you just have to think about what you name something and then go, is it the right name? Is it really do it justice? Is it really something that people understand or uh, does it, you know, make make them intrigued to try something? Um, Yeah, it's great. I mean, marketing plays so much into this understanding, understanding people's habits, understanding the things that they like or don't like. So, so important. Absolutely. Hey, Dan, there's a lot more I'd like to cover with you. So let's hit the pause button here and take a break. When we come back, we'll chat about some helpful models operators can use to keep on top of profitability. Listeners, you'll want to subscribe so you don't miss out when part two of this episode is available. Also, we'd love to get your feedback on our podcast. What do you like? What would you like to hear? Just follow the link in the podcast description and fill out a few short questions. We'd appreciate it. To get the next episode delivered to your inbox, subscribe on our website, sterlingsilvermeats.com. Just sign up for our e-newsletter at the top of the page. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. And be sure to follow at Sterling Silver Premium Meats on Instagram. Until next time, we'll see you in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats.